Welcome back to part two of our discussion, where we will discuss the most successful and certainly one of the most dynamic areas of the US, Silicon Valley. The deal-making landscape in the Valley is indeed vastly different from much of the rest of the United States. And I will be asking, what are the intricacies of doing deals there? And what are the keys to successfully transacting with Silicon Valley counterparties? I'm Robert Ashworth, and joining me today are my fellow partners in Silicon Valley, John Fisher and Maj Vaseji, and in Washington, Ayman Mir. Our panelists have advised many of the Bay Area's most well-known corporations, and they will be sharing their thoughts on what Asia businesses need to know about the Valley and on the critical issues Asia companies may face, whether it's managing rapid growth, complex shareholder structures, or valuing and protecting intellectual property. Let's kick off with Madge. The Valley is home to the iconic founder, bright, young, and often eccentric entrepreneurs that have been able to grow and transform startup businesses in record time. Tell us about some of the key considerations in managing a transaction with a founder-led business. And in particular, what are founders looking for in their investors? Thanks, Rob. I think the key is that founders are invested in their technologies, or at least often are invested in their technologies. And while they're looking for more resources, they are really looking for a company that supports their vision. So I think not only supports their vision, but they're going to look to an acquiring company or an investor that will allow them to have a degree of autonomy over that vision. In addition to that, especially with smaller teams, you'll find that the founder really wants to keep the team together and move it over. So a smooth transition becomes really important to them. I think we've all seen situations where the founders and the acquiring companies have disagreed and that has ended very poorly for the founders and they've left a lot of money on the table. So I think, again, the key is really vision alignment with the acquiring company. Now with VC investors, as opposed to just an acquisition, it's a little bit different. I think founders are largely looking for funding, but in some cases also resources. They might be looking for someone who is active in a particular space or who can help with introductions to strategic partners. So it's sort of a dance in that situation where the founder is realizing their need for funding or some kind of support, but at the same time doesn't want to dilute themselves too much. Let me ask you about incentivization. So intellectual capital, human capital, is likely to be as important now as it's ever been. How do you incentivize key employee shareholders to remain in the business? So I agree. So in, in tech and startup transactions that we see, it's absolutely key for the buyer to be able to retain the founder and the key employees. It essentially becomes a primary consideration in the transaction. And because of that, what we're seeing, and I would I would peg this to as much as 90% of the deals we're seeing, um, we have holdback arrangements for founders that are negotiated into the deal terms. And essentially how that works is a portion of the consideration that would otherwise be paid to the founders is held back and is paid over a number of years, typically three to four years, 
subject to the founder continuing to provide services to the company. This holdback is typically in the 25% to 60% range, so it's, it's very significant. That really is one of the primary um, tools that acquiring companies have in the back. An interesting question that always arises in these holdback situations is, if I hold back part of the consideration to the founders and then subject it to the founders' continuation of services, well, is that still transaction consideration? Is it still part of the goodwill? So the founder would be subject to cap gains treatment on it? Or does that change the nature of this to compensation for services, which can carry a toll because it would then subject the founder to ordinary income taxes? So this ends up being a very fact-specific question, and ultimately the company's auditors need to be comfortable with it. But it's one that both buyers and sellers care about. Sellers obviously care because the founder doesn't want to pay ordinary income tax. Buyers also care because they don't want to end up with an unhappy founder. So that's the primary tool. We have also very common to see stay or retention bonuses that clearly are compensation. So there's no cap gains versus ordinary income question anymore. Those would also be paid out over a number of years and it would be tied to continued services. And then lastly, what we almost always see are non-compete agreements with founders. As I think you're aware in California, for policy reasons, public policy reasons, non-competes are not enforceable, but one of the clear exceptions and most helpful exceptions is when the non-compete is entered into in connection with the transaction. In that case, it is enforceable. So we often see a combination of holdbacks, other retentive tools like stay or retention bonuses, and then non-compete agreements with founders. John, you've been really active in many high-profile deals in the Valley. Let me ask you, what is your checklist of key issues that, that shape these tech deals? Well, I love listening to Maj's response, right? Most of my practice is a buy-side M&A practice, and it's very clear that my clients care about two things. They care about the people, you know, the scientists and the engineers that they're acquiring, and they care about the IP and data. And those drive almost all Silicon Valley deals. And, and again, you know, Maj spent, I think, half of her response addressing the taxation consequences to employees and founders, you know, the the characterization, ordinary income versus capital gains, uh, the timing of that taxable event, right? You know, these are all things that typically one would think sell-side counsel would spearhead and address. But the reason Maj answered in that way, right, is because when representing a buyer, you need to make sure that after closing, the employees and the founders are onboarded in, in a way that maximizes their, you know, their success going forward, right? And the last thing you want is for your new employee, you know, one of the founders a day after closing to, you know, have a taxable event and, for example, not have enough cash proceeds to pay the tax bill when it, when it arrives. And so, so I think, you know, Maj and I take for granted that because we run a buy-side shop in Silicon Valley, that we need to take care of the employees and we need to take care of the IP. And those are really the, the two areas that drive, you know, almost every deal that we see in Silicon Valley. Okay, so switching to uh, intellectual property then, often it's access to proprietary IP, which is the key value driver of a tech deal. What are some of the considerations an acquirer would work through regarding IP rights and the creation of IP? 
So, so a couple of things. Historically, in Silicon Valley, when folks said IP, they were really talking about intellectual property and they were talking about data, right? Increasingly, at least my clients have started putting those into two separate buckets. And so, so I'll address generically both when I talk about IP. But first, it's really you know ownership of IP. Folks who have touched the development of IP, have they appropriately assigned that to the entity that the buyer is purchasing? Are there challenges or claims related to IP? For, for certain types of intellectual property, for example, software, you do an analysis of you know, open source issues and, and you try to understand how your client is utilizing the IP and whether that utilization arises to any you know, ownership or rights issues that will need to be papered in the transaction. Folks also look to university relationships. I think in about, you know, 50% of the cases where I've seen a thorny IP issue, you know, it's because a founder has, you know, utilized university resources or created a startup when they were associated with a PhD program. So, so whenever I'm doing due diligence, um, you know, I usually flag, you know, to our IP team prior to, you know, diligence, you know, starting if there's any university entanglements associated with that particular country or that particular transaction. So it's really, um, you know, a rule of thumb is anyone who touches the development of the IP should have appropriately assigned that to the company. And then you need to examine, you know, sort of what else is out there in the space and, and, and what parties are likely to challenge the IP. It's funny with the buy side practice, you, you acquire all these small startup companies and they're not attractive targets for patent trolls, right? I mean, they typically have, you know, a couple founders, a couple employees, a garage and an idea, you know, and then suddenly they're purchased by big tech and, you know, folks see, you know, huge pocketbooks. And so, you know, a history of having no complaints, you know, regarding your IP is, is not you know, does not buy you certainty that a day after closing, when Deep Pockets owns the, the startup, you'll be free of any ongoing claims. So it's really, you know, important to very carefully analyze, you know, how the, the target is treated IP. You know, a couple more points. A lot of our clients in Silicon Valley actually do what's called penetration testing, where they, they have specialized teams within the buyer that, do nothing but test security systems. Um, I worked on a $700 million transaction that was derailed two and a half weeks in because the passwords were one, two, three, four, five. One password uh, was administrator. And, and the client literally said, you know, it took us three hours to fully gain access to all of your data. And for Silicon Valley companies, you don't want to report a data breach after closing, right? Because it's the parent that reports that data breach. And for buy side acquirers in Silicon Valley, reputation is critical. And when, you know, customers give you their data, they wanna, you know, make sure that you're able to protect that data. So if, if a startup can't get through penetration testing and has invested all of its dollars on, you know, hiring a sales force, but not actually like hiring any IT data security personnel, that's a red flag. So, so I think a lot of the diligence we do around IP is intuitive, um, but for startups, right, you just need to be careful about where you're spending money because if you want to IPO or, or exit an M&A transaction, 
you know, you shouldn't be spending 100% of your revenue on selling your product. You should really be making sure that you're protecting your data, that you're assigning IP rights, and that you're really, you know, you know, papering things in a way that will give a buyer confidence that you've been very thoughtful and deliberate in your approach to IP. A lot of these companies, as you say, start from very simple beginnings, um, but but quickly become um, much more sophisticated, particularly in in their uh, cap table, their shareholder structures. Um, so they're getting advice some, from somewhere because they're putting in layers of equity, they're putting in weighted voting rights, participation rights, all of which adds to the complexity of, of tech deals. How do you see things developing there? And, and how do you sort of best advise uh, a buyer going in, in, in analysing this somewhat complex um, shareholder structure? Yeah, so all the all the shareholder structures with a VC-backed private target are complicated. And, and I begin to unwind this by putting everyone into buckets, right? So, so one bucket, I'm like, look, the founders and the option holders, these are your future employees, right? You need these folks to be happy with what they receive in the deal. You need to understand fully the taxation and the timing of that taxation in the transaction. And you need to be focused on onboarding them and putting in place, you know, retention and equity incentive pools and things that incentivize productivity, right? In the life sciences space, you know, you focus on, you know, milestones and earnouts and sort of contingent payments as well. But so one bucket's essentially right. These are going to be your future employees. You need to take care of them. You need to put on velvet gloves and make sure that they're very happy with everything that happens. Another bucket, right? You look at the, you know, the preferred stockholders. These are typically your VC firms. And again, you want to make sure they're happy with the transaction for a different reason, primarily because you're going to see them deal after deal after deal. And so you have a lot of reputational issues with that group of equity owners, right? So, so even though they're not going to be your employees, the next deal you do with them, they're going to remember how things went down in that transaction. And so, so for, for that bucket, right, I, I typically advise clients you need to be very transparent. You need to be you know, crystal clear in what the terms are and in what the, you know, the, you know, the, the closing certainty, the risk allocation and the economics of the transaction are, and you need to make sure that they understand those terms and are on board of those terms. And, and two, if you sign a deal, you need to close a deal, right? So we can negotiate as many outs as you want in a purchase agreement, but at the end of the day, your reputation is on the line. And some Silicon Valley companies, and you know, I'll mention Oracle, they're, they're known for this. You know, in every deal, they say, look, if I sign a deal, I will close the deal. And it's a very small universe of VC-backed investors. So when you're dealing with your preferred shares, you need to, like, again, make sure that your reputation is intact in the next deal. Um, two, you also mechanically, right, need to make sure that you comply with with the very complicated terms, especially if they've gone through multiple series of, of, of fundraisings, right? Some of these terms can be quite complicated. And, and sell-side counsel, you know, no offense to my colleagues at sell-side M&A shops, but this will be the last deal they ever do with that client, right? You know, oftentimes you're working opposite a second, third-year associate who's essentially running all aspects of the deal. So, so as a buyer, you need to unwind and take responsibility for making sure the waterfall is correct, making sure all of the liquidation preferences and veto rights are being respected and honored. Um, you need to review all of the shareholder consents, the board consents, um, and, and essentially shepherd 
as if you were sell-side counsel, the transaction to a successful closing. And this is very different than, you know, for example, public M&A, right? This is, this is really contractual and relationships that need to be un- understood, unwound, and then papered correctly to closing. Great. I'm sure we could dig uh, deeper in, in, into multiple topics on, along those lines, um, uh, you know, including um, uh, fiduciary duties of directors. How does the board uh, analyze um, uh, the sort of the, the rights of the shareholders, given their sort of competing interests as appointees of, of, of certain of the, the buckets that you described? Uh, but let, let me go back to, to Ayman and, and, and Sifius and ask a, a simple question when it comes to investing. Why does it matter? What are the Sifius implications that Asia parties need to think through if they're contemplating a deal in Silicon Valley? Sure. I mean, at, at its root, of course, Sifius has the ability to condition or block uh, foreign investment in the United States. But we're in different times now than even a few years ago. It used to be that CFIUS could only look at controlling investment and now can look at not just controlling investment, but certain types of non-controlling investment. It used to be that the process was uh, was voluntary. Uh, it's now mandatory in many instances. There used to be a question about whether or not you could rely upon an, a transaction not coming to the attention of CFIUS and essentially go through your deal and hope uh, that... Uh, uh, CFIUS would come knocking on your door, but now there's a much bigger CFIUS bureaucracy uh, or, or, or staff and the likelihood of a transaction coming to the committee's attention is far greater than it used to be. So it's really important now that foreign investors uh, in Asia and elsewhere really carefully consider the target and the sensitivities associated with the target and carefully consider sort of their essential and, and frankly realistic investment objectives and consider whether the deal structure needs to be matched to uh, the risk that the transaction presents and those investment objectives and you know whether that means uh, seeking control or that means uh, trying to structure the transaction in a way uh, that gives a certain amount of interest but doesn't trigger jurisdiction. Those are all questions that uh, will have to be asked in order to figure out what's actually possible. And beyond that, it's, of course, not just direct investment in the U.S., because CFIUS has authority to look at transactions that involved foreign transactions if the target company has U.S. operations. And that's also in a world of ever-proliferating foreign investment review regimes that are CFIUS-like across Europe, Japan, Australia, Canada, Um, and soon in the UK as well. So a very complex network now, uh, both within country as well as between countries where um, really the investment objectives need to be matched up against the what's realistically, what's realistic and and possible uh, and the structures matched to those uh, to those factors. And I mean, we see this a lot in our cross-border joint ventures in Silicon Valley, right? Clients are, are doing a, a JV outside of the U.S., you know, particularly technology and life sciences JVs. And, you know, we start talking about CFIUS and, you know, the first question is, this is not a U.S. JV. Why are we talking about, you know, U.S. FDI regimes? And so I think your point really hits home for Silicon Valley, you know, joint ventures, right? If, 
if you're doing a technology or life sciences joint venture, I think you need to call Iman and you know and do a CFIUS analysis sooner rather than later. And and Rob, just going back to a a point that you made earlier. I mean, this is there are multiple lever, levels of protection that governments are putting to place. It's just, not just CFIUS; it's export controls on the U.S. side, and it's not just uh, uh, and on, on the on the China side. It's it's the same thing now and. You know, they're all uh, in parallel and there's overlaps uh, and uh, it makes for a pretty complex regulatory environment to, to try to think through what formal and frankly informal tools the governments have to, uh, to try to shape, uh, uh, to, to shape uh, these cross-border transactions. Absolutely. So a, a much more complex and, 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 and challenging environment, I think, um, uh, for all of us to 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 enjoy navigating going forward. Um, well, th- thank you all. Um, thank you, Madge. Thank you, Iman. Thank you, John, um, for some terrific, insightful observations and, and, and commentary. Really helpful for anyone um, currently contemplating a transaction in Silicon Valley in particular. This wraps up the first podcast in the series. We hope you found it worthwhile. Please join us again for the next instalment in our Navigating the US podcast series. Thank you.